0: The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, But you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except him who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. O oh Lord, where shall we go? You alone have the words of life. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts may be acceptable unto you. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Famous lines from long ago, but those were the infamous lines that stood above the door of my ninth grade history teacher's classroom. (laughs) As a teacher, I take craven interest in this every fall as I think about going back to school. Abandon hope all ye who enter here. My teacher took that line from the third canto of Dante's Inferno and it proved to be true. He was the one teacher I can remember, the only one who possibly could have been allowed to teach always carrying a baseball bat. (laughs) He's the only teacher I know in whose class a desk was once broken for emphasis as the palm of his hand came down upon it. In his class, he's the only teacher I know who managed to con me into drinking water at some point in my education from the Dead Sea as a sick joke. Abandon hope all ye who enter here. Those words were a legitimate and truer sign of what we were walking into when we walked into his class than we could have possibly imagined. I wonder what words would be appropriate as we walk into a room like this or a bit more broadly, as we walk into the very presence of the Lord as Christians, as those who've been baptized into the name of Jesus Christ, what words would appropriately be emblazoned, hanging above the door, serving as a reminder of what we need to be mindful of? And I think of of the many possibilities, one of them, perhaps one that would be most easily overlooked by you and me, is what we find here at the end of Psalm 111. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I want to look at that psalm with you here for just a few minutes and see ways in which it describes the fear of the Lord, an idea that can oftentimes make us quite uncomfortable, oftentimes give words and expression to that that angst and that sorrow that we feel deep in our bones and in our gut, but words that are meant to provide foundation, beginning, a concrete foundation upon which we can walk forward and move in the Christian life. Words that truly are the beginning of wisdom. And so as we look at Psalm 111, we'll find that the psalmist is leading us to a celebration of the fear of God as the beginning of wisdom and sort of the the melody line of the Christian life. But we begin early. The psalmist declares that he's gonna praise the Lord. He's gonna give thanks to the Lord with his whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. And the first thing that he says in so doing is great are the works of the Lord. Great are the works of the Lord. And we see throughout this psalm, he doesn't simply say that the works of the Lord are great, but he shows in a six-fold manner that the Lord works in great ways. As you read through the following verses, you'll see repeatedly God has done X, Y, or Z, described in, in six ways. In verse four, you'll notice God has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. God prompts and God goads our memory and our remembrance. It seems each and every month as I get a bit older and the beard grows a touch wider, the notion of being helped with memory proves helpful and important. Most of all, when we talk about things that are of greatest significance, and so it's no small thing that God causes his wondrous works to be remembered. In verse five, he provides food for those who fear him. He cares not only that we know him, but that we be sustained, that we be granted that which gives us strength and energy. It goes on in that verse, he remembers his covenant forever. It's not flippant and happenstance and random. It's not arbitrary when God shows kindness to his people, just as God causes us to remember what he has told us, He himself is one who remembers. We learn from Genesis, of course, that every rainbow that we so often get to take in here in Florida is a reminder, not first to us, but first to God, that his bow is stayed and that we live in a time of his patience. He remembers his covenant promises forever, according to verse five. Or in the next verse, verse six, he's shown his people the power of his works. He doesn't just act in mighty ways, providing food, providing reminders of his promise, but he does so by showing us the power of his works, by manifesting, by displaying the strength and the might that brings the sun up yet again, that brings a child from the womb yet again, that brings another person, like Jesus teaches to Nicodemus, from death into new birth. Yet again, he's shown his people the power of his works. Or we can see in verse 9, he sent redemption to his people. We know of old that in Exodus, the people suffering in slavery and oppression cried out. And we read that God heard their cry, God saw their plight, God came down and God intervened. How often does that prove again and again to be a paradigm and an image of what the psalmist can say and what you and I can know to be true that God, God sent redemption to his people. He has done that great work. Also in that verse sixth and finally, he has commanded his covenant forever. He has commanded his covenant forever. In other words, he's not merely intervened and acted and spoken and revealed for the Jews of old, for the Disciples encircled around Jesus in the first century, but he has a word for you and for me. He has addressed us because he has commanded a covenant that is good and gracious and merciful and life-giving, and it is good forevermore. And so in these six brief statements, the psalmist isn't merely saying that the works of the Lord are great. He's showing in a variety of ways that God does great things. And of course, he could go on as he does elsewhere throughout the Psalter and as you and I could share from even just the last week and recent days that the Lord does great works and we do well to remember them. We do well to bring them to memory, to recount them, to speak of them, to be mindful of what God is doing in our midst. That's why we stood earlier and we professed belief, answering that question, Christian, what is it that you believe? And most of what we profess is what God has done the ways in which he has stepped into the breach, the ways in which he has intervened in our need, the ways in which he has come down and he has walked amongst us in the person of Jesus and he has borne our plight and he's died our death and he's risen for our justification and he has taken us on high. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father and reigns in glory and we shall be with him forevermore. And so it is a remarkably routine practice, but it's a no less glorious practice that we can bring to memory, as the psalmist says, these wondrous works of God, works of old, works of this very week. But you know what? That's not all that he says here in the psalm. He he says in verse two, great are the works of the Lord, but he immediately jumps forward and says, studied by all who delight in them. What does it mean? What does it mean to study the works of the Lord? It's one thing to recount and to witness, to testify to those around you in the congregation of what you have seen the Lord do and to hear from them ways in which they have seen God's kindness. But what does it mean to actually study those works that you delight in? And again, he doesn't merely say this. The psalmist shows us what it means to study the works in which we're to delight. And to those six great works that are described so briefly in this psalm, there's a corresponding six statements about God that are made here in this psalm. Again, I'm not gonna linger over any of the particulars, but let me highlight these for you. In verse three, we read that God is full of splendor, and majesty is his work. We read on in that verse and we learn that his righteousness, or perhaps otherwise put, his justice, it endures forever, even though we may often doubt. If justice will reign, we often worry that injustice and lawlessness perhaps is, is the order of the day. But God's justice endures forever. That surely must have been such a significant word for a king in a time of difficulty as in the time of Psalm 111. Or We learn in verse 4 that the Lord is gracious and merciful. The Lord is gracious and merciful. We learn in verse seven, the works of his hands are faithful and just. And then it goes on to say next that all his precepts are trustworthy. They're established forever and ever. And finally in verse nine, we read holy and awesome is his name. Six statements, not just of what God has done, but of who God is. Of who God is. What does it mean that God's works are great and those who delight in them study them? It means that we don't simply content ourselves with being served by God and by hearing of ways in which God has come down to intervene on our behalf but that in considering and recounting and meditating on what God has done, we ultimately want not what God provides, but the provider who has stepped into the breach. What we are most made for is not daily bread. It's not even redemption. It's the God who has provided and the God who redeems. And so it's not for nothing here then in verse 4 one of these statements is the Lord is gracious and merciful. Some of you perhaps who've lived with your Bible for years at this point will know that that's that's a familiar phrase if you've read your Old Testament. The Lord is gracious and merciful. It's one of the most frequently recounted phrases from the Old Testament. And it comes initially from a story where Moses, Moses who was raised in Pharaoh's house, Moses who had to flee to the wilderness, Moses who was called to go and address Pharaoh on behalf of God and for the sake of his people Israel, Moses who worked those wonders by God's might, the 10 plagues, Moses who eventually led the people through the Red Sea and into the wilderness and up to the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses there is to meet God on top of the mountain. And Moses receives God's law. and Moses worships and takes in the goodness of God's coming down to provide anew for his people, to set them apart as a people holy to the Lord, a a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And of course, if you've seen the movie, you know that things don't go well at this point. You know that while Moses is up there being addressed by God, the people are down there. And they are committing idolatry. They're fashioning a golden calf. They're seeking to have God and his worship on their own terms. And so God is jealously wrought to anger. And God initially threatens to do away with them. He's going to wipe them out and start over with Moses. And Moses intervenes and he says, Lord, please don't wipe them out. And so the Lord says, I will not wipe them out. I'll just send them off on their way and I will... I will bless you and build a people of you. And Moses says, no, 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 don't don't leave them alone. Don't leave them behind. Don't send us forth, but that you go with us. And God says, I will go with you. I'll remember my covenant promise forever. And Moses has at this point requested not one, but two things. And they've both been granted. So being a, a clever guy, he thinks perhaps I ought to push my luck. Perhaps I ought to ask for something more, something better. This seems to be my moment. I'm on a roll. And so he asks for that greatest of things. He's not satisfied with survival. And he's not satisfied simply with God's sustaining promise to take them eventually into the promised land. Moses wants something even grander. And so he says, show me your glory. Show me your glory of all the things that Moses has learned that you ought to want. Of all the ways in which your appetite might be trained. He's learned that life and survival are basic. And he's learned that direction and provision being led to the promised land. Sort of moving on up to the east side is is a bit better. But showing me your glory, O God. That's the greatest of all things. And so Moses asks... And at this point, God has to offer a, a bit of a rebuke. He says, you can't see my glory and live. But if you go up on the mountain tomorrow, you stand around the edge of the rock, I will pass by and you can see my backside. And when, when this occurs amidst the, the clouds and the lightning and the noise and the pyrotechnics, what we read is that the Lord passes by and he proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God God merciful and gracious. And that's what the psalmist is recounting here. Just like Moses had learned to depend on God for bread and Moses had learned to depend on God for redemption, and in so doing, Moses had learned that God was not only dependable but beautiful and he wanted to see his glory. So the psalmist has learned that he can depend on God to deliver him from Saul, from foreign opponents, from himself. Just like Moses, the psalmist has learned that the Lord provides reconciliation and redemption, the forgiveness of sins, deliverance from his own transgressions. Just like Moses, the psalmist has learned that God providing those kinds of earthly gifts and those kind of heavenly provisions, God is not only good, but he's beautiful. And so he recounts those same words that the Lord is merciful and gracious. You see, I I think what's being modeled for us here is this notion that in receiving the gifts of God and in recounting those gifts to each other, we are supposed to not merely focus upon the gifts but to increasingly delight upon the giver. We're to note something of God's character. And that's what brings us finally to the conclusion of the psalm. As we read here in verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. How easy is it to go about your day completely forgetful of God It doesn't demand a lot of effort in our world, if we're honest. You check your phone in the morning or perhaps you you turn on the TV and you catch the news and my hunch is unless you've got a different provider than me, the stories of what God is doing are not gonna be leading stories. There will be all sorts of busied, harried action and God will not be mentioned. You'll have a to-do list, of course, Many things that an employer, a roommate, a spouse, extended family, neighbors, and friends demand. Typically, they involve all sorts of things. Getting to a doctor, closing out an account, getting to a meeting, and so forth. How rarely do they involve God? If we're honest, in our busied, harried lives, it's so easy to be utterly forgetful of God. And then consider those moments in our days when we are mindful of God, when we do remember him. How often is it that we remember him simply as another service provider? I know I need to mail off, that the end of the month is coming and I, I need to mail the, the mortgage company and, and the utility provider and the insurance, a variety of checks and settle accounts and I need to make an appointment to go see that doctor. We're specialists and I know I should catch up uh, with somebody you know, from a, a, another business down the street and sort of see how things are going at a competitor. We think of all sorts of other things and then we, we pencil in God. And to keep this Christian thing going, I ought to make time to pray to God. To make sure that I continue to enjoy peace, I ought to make sure to go Still my heart and pray a bit or read scripture. It's so easy to to reduce God to what God gives us, isn't it? Now, they could be good things. They could be glorious things. Turn to God, not merely for the simple things of life, bread and electricity, shelter, but, but to go further and to ask that God would provide hope. That God would buoy our spirits and give peace and comfort in the midst of sorrow and overwhelmedness. There are all sorts of things we can turn to God as the the giver of good gifts, and that's right and good. But how easy is it, even in our pious moments, even in those times when we are prayerful and committed, to consider God simply for what He provides, for His great works? And friends, God is eager to work for you as he was for the psalmist and as he was for Moses and the Israelites. But the greatest work that God's going to do is not merely providing birth or even new birth, that in so doing, in making us and in remaking us by grace in Jesus Christ, he wants you to know him. He wants you to know him. He wants you to commune with him He goes through the business of making you and at great cost of redeeming and remaking you so that you can be with him and that you can know him in love. There's a a remarkable story from sports history. I'm a basketball nut, so you'll have to forgive me for just a minute. In game five of the 2005 NBA Finals, the Detroit Pistons are attempting to Uh, repeat as champions and they're facing off against the San Antonio Spurs. In the last moments of the game, uh, it came down to perhaps one play it seemed and the Spurs were about to inbound the ball and the Pistons were set up to guard them and the ball went to the corner on the baseline and uh, one of the better defenders of the Pistons, Rasheed Wallace, swung over to help double team and cover and sort of uh, overwhelm the Spurs player in the corner. It was a good play, except the ball swung from the corner to the wing and there in the wing was a man named Robert Ory. Now, it's typically the case if you're playing basketball that if the ball goes to the corner, it is a great place to double team and sort of overwhelm someone and easily cause a turnover. Slow the game down at best. However, you don't wanna do this in one situation. If the person one pass away is someone whose nickname is Big Shot Bob. If your nickname is Big Shot Bob, you're, you're, you're floating in a realm that's different from the rest of us pedestrians, right? Like a, like a queen on the chessboard. There are certain moves that you can make that the rest of us mere mortals can't. And Robert Ory, Big Shot Bob, is sitting there and as the ball swings to the corner and the defender comes over to try and double team, the ball slides over to the side and Big Shot Bob is there and, well, he does what someone named Big Shot Bob would do, of course. He hits a three-pointer. And it was one of the greatest moments of abject stupidity you could ever imagine in sports history. It, It led to the Spurs winning the game, it led to the Spurs winning the title, It led to that defender having to walk off the court in shame, the one player whose eyes you always had to be watchful of, the one player whose position you always had to be alert to, the only person on the court whose nickname is Big Shot, and you left him and you ignored him. Friends, I wanna suggest when we're told the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we're being reminded that we don't want to be that defender. Whatever situation you walk into this week, above the many things to concern yourself with, there is but one character always to be alert to. There is one person who can make moves no one else can do. There is one person whose strength and calm and poise goes above and transcends all others. When we're told to fear the Lord, we're not told to somehow quake in our boots. We're not told to to worry that God might be mad at us and to pray anxiously that God will somehow deem our efforts as enough. Now, we're told, of course, that that kind of fear, that servile fear, as some have called it, that wordless darkness, as the novelist Jan Martel puts it, perfect love cast out that fear, we read in 1 John. But there's another fear. There's fear and awareness, alertness and attentiveness to the one who matters most, the one who is greatest, the one who is most beautiful, the one who's most powerful, the one around whom things spin, the one character in every room who matters. And that, that kind of fear, that kind of fear is what we're made for. We're told that that fear. In Psalm 19, the fear of the Lord is clean and it endures forever. It doesn't cloud up our lives. It doesn't somehow lead us away from acting by by leading us into anxiety, but it, it cleans and it purifies. It makes things transparent so that we can see what's really going on. It's that kind of fear that leads us Not merely to a good beginning, but to a good conclusion. As we read what Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7, he says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Fear is not for those who are outside of Christ. It's for the beloved. We learn to fear God. And it's not merely for the early days when you're a kid and you need to be put in your place. It's how we bring things to a fitting conclusion. You see, when verse 10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it doesn't mean it's the inception point. It's where you embark from. It rather means it's the foundation. It's the rock upon which all else rests that God wants not merely to give you things you knew you wanted otherwise, that God wants to provide like Santa Claus what our world tells us we should yearn for, that God wants to simply answer the hurts that we would have felt irrespective of being trained by the gospel, but that through that and in that and by that, God wants to invite you to deeper desires, God wants to reorient your yearnings. God wants to recalibrate your appetite. God wants to train you to desire something still greater. As you come to see the great works of the Lord and you come to study them with delight, like Moses on that mountain, like the psalmist in the many ins and outs of his life, God is inviting us, not merely to receive gifts, but to learn that the greatest gift is the giver himself, who doesn't merely want to provide stuff for you, but longs to be with you. Could we believe that this day? Could we believe that God, the great God of love, the perfect God of all fullness, the God who has no need of anything, in his freedom, And in his lordship, he chose to make you and me. And could we dare to imagine that in all the many things he does around the world and in our particular stories, that he wants not merely to give you stuff and to sort of keep you settled on the side like a parent who keeps the child busy with other things, but he wants to give you attention. He wants to focus himself upon you and he wants to reorient your desires So that through the grace of his gospel and the work of his son and spirit, you will above all else long to be with him. You will before all else long to know him. You will through all else take joy in knowing him more fully. Friends, as we think about the year ahead, as we think about this very week and the day before us, We wanna not merely be mindful of God and talk of God and speak of things God has pulled off for us. But we always wanna ask, what does that reveal of God? In what way does that illumine God's character? In what small way is that a deliverance on the request that God would show me His very glory? And friends, we wanna go further and say, how does that train me to want something greater? How does that call me out from the small and the simple and the mundane and the rather lame that I so often busy myself with? That I might, with the psalmist and with Moses and with Christian men and women through the ages and around the globe, that I might increasingly come to know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray together. Lord, We thank you that you step into the breach. We thank you that you don't leave us alone. We thank you that you again and again come to act in grace. And we confess that oftentimes it's easy to rejoice in what you've provided and yet to fail to penetrate further to ask, what can we know of you? What can we see of you? What can we rejoice in your very character as you work grace upon grace and long-suffering mercy in our midst. And so we pray with Moses that our heart's desire this year would increasingly be, Lord, that you would show us your glory. We pray in the situations of sorrow and hurt, that we would pray not merely, Lord, that you would provide reprieve and comfort, but that you would show yourself to be the God of all peace and of perfect comfort. We pray in those situations of remarkable provision and abundance, that we would find you not merely to be the God who generously gives gifts, but that we would see something of your excessive, glorious, full, rich character. We pray that in all things, Lord, we might be those who would be satisfied with nothing less than taking our delight in you. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who came not merely to give us life, but to give us life abundant. Amen.